0: Welcome back to another edition of the Faith in Politics podcast. This month, we've got an interview with Jonathan Reynolds, MP, who is the Shadow Secretary of State for the Department of Work and Pensions and is also the Chair of Christians on the Left. And later on, Rosella and I will be musing about universal basic income.
1: So we have a great interview lined up with Jonathan Reynolds. It's taken us a bit of time to organise this with the current crisis, but we're super excited because in that time he's been appointed as the Shadow Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. So I gave us some really more exciting stuff to chat about with him.
0: Yes, so Jonathan was first elected as an MP in 2010 for Stirlbridge and Hyde, and since then he's held a number of shadow positions for transport, for energy uh, and for the city before his current appointment. Uh, at the Department of Work and Pensions and he's also the chair of Christians on the Left uh, which is a Christian organisation affiliated with the Labour Party and on top of all that he's originally from the Northeast, which gets him a big tick from me and he also went to the University of Manchester which gets him a big tick from Rosella so we are big fans.
1: Indeed so without further ado let's hear what he has to say. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for joining us today on the podcast. Um, you're the chair of Christians on the Left. What made you want to take on this role? And what is the role of such an organisation in public life?
2: Yes, well, I mean, Christians on the Left is a great organisation. Uh, in terms of taking on being the chair, I, I did it really by surprise and with some trepidation. So um, you know, I, I was someone I'd always, would always have described myself as a, as a Christian, but to be honest, i only really started to go to church to to read the bible to, for it to be a, an actual you know a real part of my life rather than just something culturally that you, you you associate yourself with after i'd been elected to parliament so i a few things happened and my wife um would go to church much more than me i should tend to cook sunday lunch eventually we had so many children i had to go and help her at church with <laughs> looking after them uh, on a sunday morning it just, it just became something i was paying attention to i was getting a lot out all by Um, particularly we we had a new vicar come to our church at home in Mottram uh, which is in my constituency who became a real close friend you know and and a few things had happened and I had been involved with Christians in Parliament you know not not an extensive way but but in some way and so Stephen Timms who was the long-term chair of Christians on the left came to me one day and said look I'm I'm thinking about you know my time and I'm thinking about giving myself would you consider doing it and I I thought well it's a great organization I know all about I know the people involved but i'm nervous i'm not someone who has sort of been out there as a christian in public life you know I, i i have some skepticism when i look at other political systems particularly in america as to how people maybe present faith as a kind of endorsement of their political credentials i i'm worried they're using it for their own benefit which is not to me anything at all that it's about but you know, when I looked at it, as you'll know, the, the Labour Party in particular uh, owes a huge amount to Christian socialism. The organisation, the structure of the Labour Party is, is still effectively mirrored on the Methodist Church with an annual conference and, and local branches. You know, it, it's a huge part of our history. And I think it's an important one. I mean, the Labour Party will always be a, a federation of different types of left-wing thought. But I, I think Christian socialism is a really big, important part of it. I think it's 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 important to have an organisation... In terms of how we're structured, which is both a voice for people of faith for Christians in the Labour Party, but also acts as something of a bridge to faith communities outside of it as well. Um, and so I've done that now for a couple of years. And I really enjoy it. I really feel you know, there's benefit I'm bringing to the party and to my work by doing this. And, and most of all, I just meet some fantastic people, the kind of people that I would like to see more of in politics.
1: Congratulations on your recent appointment as Shadow Work and Pension Secretary. We wanted to take this opportunity to dig into some of the current issues surrounding the pandemic and the economic support during this time, specifically universal credit. So you've said before that universal credit is a failed system due to it being created by those who will never need to use it. During the pandemic, there are some who never would have expected to rely on universal credit, um, but suddenly have had to, which has led to some of the injustices of this system being recognised by those who previously had no reason to. Is this likely to have an impact long term? And what kind of impact would you like this to have?
2: Well, I think you're absolutely right to say that. And it has highlighted not just some of the intricacies of universal credit, but really how the whole system works. And to me, what is good is the government themselves began the crisis by acknowledging some of those shortcomings. So you see that, that big increase in the generosity of the core amount of universal credit. You've really seen all of the sanctions and conditionality suspended during the crisis. Job centres are quite rightly focused on getting through. Those claims, but it is an opportunity. It's no more than that. I think people always look to to big events, to crises, and say, you know, this is going to prove everything I want to do and I already believe is now validated. It doesn't work like that, but you do get a chance. So if we look at, you know, universal credit is is two things in terms of the politics of it. On the one hand, it's just simply the name of a project to combine six into and out of work benefits, things like tax credits, housing benefit, JSA, and so forth. Now the simplification mission who would oppose that i mean the, the benefit system is complicated even with a simplification so it should be easy to understand that it should get help to people. the reason universal credit has a bad reputation amongst a lot of people is it is seen very much in terms of being a punitive benefit um you know people who are, are losing out on income if they're transferred to it in many cases uh, even with transitional protections there are some nasty surprises sometimes for people it, it is seen really as part of an ethos that the, the way the social security system should work is to, I would say, hit people with a stick to prod them as if you know, they're doing something wrong and it's their fault. And actually that sense of, of, of poverty or being out of work being an individual's fault, you know, that, that is how this country thought in the 19th century, the big change, again, Christian reformers, people like Stephen Browntree, you know, they did the work to say, look, this is about the cycles of unemployment, the issues people have in their lives. And, and I feel with much of the, the rhetoric from government from the coalition onwards, this was a huge mistake that they made. You know, as you say, there are people today who are now experiencing universal credit. They could not possibly have planned for a global pandemic in their own lives. But even if they had planned, say they put savings aside. but if you put savings aside, you're not eligible to get anything. You know, if you look at the logic on the two-child limit, it's that people who are receiving social security should be subject to the same. constraints on how big their families can be as people who are in work well that sounds fine but actually people dip into a social security system temporarily and I don't know anyone who would have made a decision on a third or fourth child in the last three years thinking well what if a global pandemic shuts down my sector and industry so some of the arguments the government have had you know have really been shown up by how the the pandemic has affected the system but most of all yes I do think there's a chance to, to rethink the language and the whole policy space based on the fact that you know we're really seeing what, what a social security system is and should be. It's something that needs to be there to cope with downturns that could be affecting just an individual family or maybe a lot of families at the same time. But that's safety net. That is crucially what the, what the system is. And yeah, I think we've got too far away from that. I think the fact that there's been so much contention around whether the furlough scheme should be extended, whether the self-employed system is wide enough, is because the the safety net is is still now with those improvements so thin. You know, it's got so many holes in it that if you're not on the furlough scheme or you're not on the self-employed scheme, you really feel you're getting something very poor indeed. And the last thing I'd say on this is, the more you think about this, I think the worse it gets. So let's just imagine there's two identical people. They work in the same place. They've been furloughed on the same salary at the same time. But that business is going to go bust, and they're not going to have their jobs at the end of this crisis. If the first person spent all of their money, everything they've received, they blow every penny. Well, they'll be eligible for more support than anyone who has carefully managed their money, been thrifty during the crisis, is risk averse. Because of course, that sum of money they're left with at the end will be taken into account in terms of their (coughs) excuse me eligibility for universal credit. So I think things like that are a real perverse incentive. And I think yes, there is hopefully an opportunity now, not just on the left but more widely to say, look, let's acknowledge the problems we had with the system going into this crisis praise what the government's done i think they need to go further but yes at least they've acknowledged that but let us leave this crisis and going forward have a system that really is a proper safety net and it works for everyone
1: so as we move out of lockdown and talks turn to reopening the economy what support will you be asking the government to provide during
2: this time well i think one of the biggest issues is going to be how enduring unemployment will be you know, I grew up in the northeast of England in the 1980s. Unemployment was the issue. You know, big changes in how the, the mining industry declined and was closed. The, the shipyards. You know, unemployment to me was the biggest problem. And I think what we know from crises is that, especially when people are out of work or out of training when they're young, it has a huge scarring effect for a long time after that. What makes this crisis very different to ones we've had before, and let's just be clear, we're talking now already about highest unemployment for 25 years in this country. So the, the scale of the problem cannot be underestimated. But there are some sectors you would always kind of rely on to, to bounce back quickly after a recession. So hospitality is a good example. You know, it's not like making cars or aeroplanes. You don't need the market to get back where it was. Usually that, that, that's not the case after a COVID crisis because you know, it's sectors like that that are particularly hard hit and can't just jump back to where they were. There are some sectors like the creative industries where, you know, how can we open theatres and and cinemas on a socially distanced model? I mean, the the economics of that don't work. So you're you going to have to have a a much bigger role for government still in in that crisis. And I think that will be very much around how can we uh, make sure that young people in particular guaranteed a a job or and training now we did that after the financial crisis it was called the future jobs fund part of a wider package but you know we recognize the cost to all of us as a society is less by funding you know a type of work or placement or training for these young people than the cost the long-term cost of leaving them out of work on support so it's that sort of big intervention that we're going to need from the government Uh, i'm quite optimistic that the, the, the battle between political parties will be about how best to support people not whether we should or not Uh, and that for me would be a good thing but I'm determined that on the Labour side we'll have a big ambitious offer to that because I don't want to see this country repeat what I think are mistakes we've made in the past where we've been left for many many years by the impact of significant periods of mass unemployment. Thinking more long-term post-pandemic what are your priorities
0: going to be as Shadow DWP Secretary? The Joint Public Issues Team, which we both work for and churches generally, have done a lot of work speaking out about the failures of universal credit and advocating for people with experience of poverty to be included in the policymaking uh, process or initiatives like Poverty Truth
2: Commissions, if you've heard of those. Is this something that you'd be committed to? Yes, so as you know, the Department of Working Pensions covers about a quarter of all the government spending. So when you're giving your priorities, you're always nervous that you know, say you don't say something like pensions, that's, you know, two thirds of the money that is, is spent. And, you know, each bit of it is so important. Disability benefits, employment support, the health and safety of work. You never want to miss anything out. But, but in terms of the, the specific question you've just asked, child poverty will be a massive part of our work. Yes. Now, you will know, uh, listeners will know, as soon has 4 million young people uh, living in poverty. All things being equal, that will rise to 5 million. These are the figures before the crisis for the impact of, Uh, this huge economic event on all of us. Now, I I think that is unconscionable. I also think it's a terrible waste of resources. I know as a constituency MP, what we spend on on children's services, on on, on care services, on even the criminal justice system. You know, anyone logically would look at it and say, you give support to families early on. You don't don't pay these high costs at the end. And that's before we we consider the unconscionable moral impact or what it means for young people to grow up in serious poverty. One thing I think hasn't really been commented on enough is there is no longer any disagreement between left and right in politics in the UK as to what poverty is. You know, at one point there was a lot of work from um, the CSJ and things on the conservative side that were saying things like poverty is not so much an economic issue, but it's linked to family breakdown and that sort of thing. All of that work has crystallised in the government's Social Metrics Commission, and they themselves say very clearly income is the primary way by which we determine poverty particularly child poverty so we're not arguing about what the definition is anymore and I also think that the crisis has shown up anyone who sort of takes the view that it's only absolute poverty that counts it's not relative poverty well look if you've been in lockdown without a garden and you haven't got broadband that's been a really different experience to people who parents are working from home you know they've got leisure leisure amenities they're able to you know use the whole of their home the garden and everything to make it a little bit easier I mean We've all been in this together, but it hasn't been a common experience. The inequality in people's working conditions and in their home life and their housing situation, they have been absolutely front and centre in this. So I think actually on the issues, there's agreement about what we're talking about. But what I would want, because I'm always asked, you know, do you think if your chair of Christians on the left, people who are Christians should be on the left? And I say, look, I think there are common things that we should care about. Child poverty and deprivation should be very much one. Is something we we agree on as a priority. There might be a right wing set of offers and solutions to that. There might be on our side a left wing set of solutions. We should be competing as to who's got the best answer to it. And I've got to say at the minute, I do not know what the government's view or policy is on child poverty. I don't know why we haven't got a strategy on child poverty. I don't know really how they see this problem, other than just telling us, well, I think families should be better off in work. Well, absolutely, yes, but of course so many of those children growing up in poverty are growing up in households where their parents work. So again that's the problem, let's talk about that. And I'm hoping to build as big a coalition as possible from people whose starting point is I do not want to live in a country where there are five million young people growing up in poverty. I don't think that's a good thing, I don't think that's a good use of resources. I want politicians to be telling me how we will tackle this problem, whether on the right or the left, whether they agree on the solutions or not. That's what they should be telling us and I think already talking to people, not Christians of course, but a wide range of faith communities, charities, civil society. Yes, there's a big group of people who share that view. Why should we, in a country as wealthy as this, be tolerating and not saying anything about this level of need? And if we can build that coalition and we have politicians competing as to who can best solve a problem like that, we'd be in a much better place. One of the potential solutions is some of the problems we
0: see that have been uh, by many people is universal basic income and this is something that you've expressed support for in the past. Uh, For people who don't know this is where every citizen would receive a guaranteed unconditional income from the state uh, as a kind of replacement for a means-tested benefit system. What appeals to you about this idea and will you be pushing for it to become Labour Party policy?
2: Yes, I mean I am someone who's curious about ideas. I'm intellectually curious, I want to know how they can deliver change and, and do things. And I think more people in Parliament should have that level of curiosity. What has always attracted me to this idea of a, a, a universal system of provision, which is for instance what we had with child benefit before the high higher earner surcharge came in, is that really many of the problems of any social security system come when you're trying to manage someone who's been out of work and they're going back into work. And it's what rate you should withdraw social security support from, you know, as their earnings go up. This is the taper on universal credit. It's been at the crux of basically every social security system. And actually, the answer to this question from many governments has been, you just make it punitive. You, know, you just sanction people if they don't play by the system. Of course, what you have in universal provision is when it's not means tested, you have no disincentives to go back into work. You, know, you don't have a complicated system where you have to taper that off. Everyone would get the same. Now, I don't think in the short term we're in a position where, you know, the government's going to give everyone a set amount of money. I'm always honest about how in in the UK you would manage such a system alongside the need to support people with disabilities with a greater sum of money, and how you would manage the housing market where, you know, a very modest property in London can cost more to rent than a very large property in another part of the country. These are big problems, but we should be curious about what is going on in other countries and looking to see, you know, even on a trial basis, what might work. If we're all agreed that the social security system we have now hasn't worked or isn't working, and we have to change it for this crisis, let's not rule ideas out. Let's see what's, what are the, what other what countries are looking at. And I think maybe at some point this might be the sort of thing where we trial in an area with a different you know, position, and then go nationwide policy we've got to first. But there is some fascinating work happening around the world. Um, you know whether it's actually the, 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 the example in Finland was often cited as a, as a trial went wrong actually you look at the data it tells you some fascinating things it it doesn't mean people all sit at home doing no work it it shows that you give them a level of economic security that allows them to do so many other things and actually the benefits of that can be very significant for society so i am always going to be someone who's open to new ideas i'm I'm practical about the system we'll have to go forward with and how we will find the best way to do that but i'm always going to be looking for what works in other parts of the world and, and what you can look at it in terms of the features of a system here ultimately any social security social security system will be a mixture of some degree of universal provision child benefit being a good example of that some mixture of contribution based support so if you receive what's now called new style job seekers allowance that's based on your national insurance and some sort of targeted provision for those most in need especially people with disabilities you have all these components and you've got to decide what the right balance is And again. Let's just look and see what, what interesting work's happening out there. You've touched on this already, but the welfare state has undergone
0: a number of transitions over the years, which have been underpinned by certain values, some of which you've just said there, from kind of an insurance-based system, which is the idea that if you pay in, you should get something out. Beverage report, post-war Labour government, works on the basis of if you're in need then you're entitled to help. Universal credit is kind of this uh, stick that you've talked about, about incentivising work and the idea of uh, universal basic income is this universality. So what do you think the purpose of the welfare state is? You've said that it, it's that combination of those things, but what are the, the values that should underpin it?
2: I think the values that should underpin any social security system are, first of all, something which is there for people when they need it, recognising that that is not just about that individual, but as a society, that is, that is to all of our benefit. I mean, I look at a country like America is a good example in terms of you know, a modern prosperous country without uh, effectively a real social security system you know and you just look at the social and economic segregation you know the, the tensions that underlie some of the scenes that we're seeing the discrimination and, and you know access to denied access to services that, that, that ultimately you know produce a society that no one wants to be a part of and I think we've got to get that message across more than actually a social security system is there for everybody i think one of the biggest differences between say the health service or, or, or state education is that everyone has some experience in the health service or, or usually state education a lot of people don't have any personal experience of uh, the social security system and, and often think it's something very different to, to what it is i also think we should recognize it's in all our interest to support families especially young people um, and the system should should cover that and that again that is not just about what is the right circumstances for young people to grow up in what is the right way to, to marshal resources in a society and, and investing in people at that point i think is absolutely crucial and i know these are big requests i know this is not the, the political language that we've been using for almost 10 years now about how the system works but I, I, again whether it's the crisis or, or just a, a wider change of view the opportunity is there to do that and I think I've got to try and use that opportunity to, to push the, the principles and the case for our social security system, as well as any specific policies.
1: So finally, we have a question that we ask all our guests, um, and that is, if you could ask one question at Prime Minister's Questions, what would it be?
2: Well, that's a great question. I mean, looking at it t- terms of where we are right now, I-, I think one of the biggest questions that I have, it wouldn't be a flippant one, but it, it would be about i'm particularly interested in this country learning the lessons and what has happened in care homes during the COVID crisis i think how we look after and respect and give people dignity in old age is, is a massive deal for, for british society i think if you look at our existing social care system and compare it to our health system it's a poor comparison and i think we're all recognizing that the days of fudging this have got to come to an end and we've got to you know, have a proper and serious approach to social care. we're all going to need social care and this, this divide we have in the u k where if you have a health need when you're old, you'll get it fully funded and looked after. But if you get say dementia, you know the support which won't be anything like what it would be if it was say cancer, that is not the right way forward and i am um, I think we you know I don't think public inquiries and things are about blame and recriminations, but I think from any big crisis you have to look at you know what what worked and what didn't and I am. Um, I am worried by you know, the early stage of the crisis where people were discharged from hospital with COVID to care homes and, and what that meant for all the people. I think we simply must have an answer on really what happened and how we can do that better if it ever happens again in the future, as well as improving social care. So I would ask the Prime Minister right now a question based around care homes and the COVID crisis. Jonathan Reynolds, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, lovely to talk to you guys. Thanks to Jonathan
0: for that interview. I think that was a really interesting insight into his thinking and into where Labour Party might be going on some of these welfare issues in the coming years. We mentioned in the interview that Jonathan had expressed some support for universal basic income in the past. So we thought that that would be an interesting topic to discuss in our monthly using. Now, as we said, this is the idea of giving every citizen an unconditional Income paid for by the state. And the basic idea is that it gives people who are currently reliant on the state for support more dignity and security because it takes away means testing. It incentivizes people into work because your benefits don't reduce once you start working again. It does away with the complexity of the current system and it promotes spending in the wider economy because it's not just helping people who are most in need, but giving everyone a bit of disposable income main arguments against it are that it's expensive, hell of a lot more expensive than our current system, that in practice it might not even fulfill the objectives it seeks to achieve, and this idea of why would you give money to higher owners who don't need the extra money rather than focusing those resources on those who need it most. There's not been a whole lot of discussion in church circles about UBI, but in recent months, especially with the onset of COVID, a few people have expressed more support for it. The Bishop of Durham said in the House of Lords uh, last month that he hoped the government would explore it. And perhaps more significantly, the Pope, uh, no less, said that he thought the time was right to consider it. So we thought we'd explore some of the theological and moral issues surrounding universal basic income, or UBI, as it's often known.
1: Yeah. So while there might not be much yet in the church on the topic of UBI, there's some people who started thinking around this and. Um, As you'd probably expect, there's very much two sides of a spectrum of people who think it's an amazing idea and those who think it's terrible. So I'd look at some of the reasons people are against it. And one of the things that stood out as being a particular sticking point for some people was that they understand work to be an important part of the Christian tradition. Even outside of faith circles, the phrase Protestant work ethic is a common one used. So for some people, it's a great concern regarding giving out a universal basic income with the expectation that this will stop people from working and therefore lose out on a key part of their humanity. I mean, we see in Genesis, God ordaining work, a popular verse used is that by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. So rather than expecting to receive without work, work is an important part of our survival. But I think it's important to recognise that something like UBI isn't undermining this verse, that actually this is, probably been undermined many times by serious inequalities in our world. I think my instinct is that many of the people writing these blogs, myself included, have never had to rely on the sweat of their brow to feed themselves. It's also a mistake, I think, to assume that UBI would make people lazy, particularly amongst young people. Surveys have found that work is about much more than a paycheck. It's about fulfilment. It's about relationship with others. And I think UBI also recognises that There's an immense value in unwaged work, so people's caring responsibilities, uh, volunteering for charities and such, where a paycheck isn't the reason people are working. And whilst there might not be a huge economic benefit, the impact on society as a whole is so important.
0: I think a good illustration of uh, some of these debates is the trial that took place in Finland, and the Finnish government uh, undertook the most famous trial of UBI so far they gave 2000 unemployed people uh, an unconditional income and what it found over the two years the trial ran was that it didn't particularly encourage people back into work it had a very minor impact on unemployment but what it did do is improve well-being almost universally across uh, the people who were trialed. Now some people said well this is an obvious failure because the point of any welfare system is to enable people people to survive while they try and find work again. And then other people are saying, well, this is an obvious success because it's improved well-being and people deserve to be happy whether or not they're employed or even seeking employment. So I think it is this question of where does our worth come from? There's that school of thought which suggests, uh, theologically or politically, that your worth to society is measured either by how much you contribute to the economy or simply whether you are undertaking work and toil. And there's something about universal basic income which says to every person in society, whether or not you're in work, if you're temporarily out of work, if you can't work, or even if you don't want to work, you're still valuable and worthy of having enough money to meet your basic needs. I think this is an important consideration in a time where automation is on the rise and you've got to ask whether it's worth creating jobs for the sake of creating jobs for a growing population. Or do you accept that there's going to be more people than there is work and acknowledge that it's still worth supporting those who are not just temporarily out of work, but who are going to be perennially out of work? And I think my faith wants unconditional dignity for every person made in the image of God. Not everyone has the right to some support, but you've got to jump through all these hoops first. I think there's something grace like in the unconditional worth. That it gives people that you don't have to earn it, it's there for you uh, unconditionally. Now, y- you can argue that you can still have a means tested social-, social security system which isn't based on incentivizing work or needing to do something uh, to be worthy of having a decent standard of living. But UBI also has the benefit of everybody getting something out of it, so it's less open to the the scroungers discourse that we saw after the 2008 crash. People are less likely to hate on a system that they they also get something out of, which is a point that Jonathan made.
1: One of the other big questions around UBI is whether it is good for the poor. Um, and I think my instincts hearing about UBI was why on earth would you give a universal basic income to someone on, say, £80,000 a year and the same amount to someone without an income? It just seems... It's a very different approach, at least. Um, But I think, for me, at least, this was cleared up when I found out that, actually, those on a higher income would be taxed to return this kind of UBI. But I think there is an important point around people's needs are different. Say, someone with disabilities or people in different regions of the countries where there is higher living costs, um, their needs are different, and there's a question of whether a universal basic income would meet Everyone's needs um, accordingly. I think my instinct also would question whether the people who greatest benefit to say something like UBI might be, say, young professionals who are not on a huge salary yet. But so UBI would benefit them to maybe take an extra day off a week to pursue training opportunities. Whereas others might not be able to benefit from those opportunities. That a UBI just covers their basic needs and this kind of individualism that. Um, UBI aspires to that every individual gets the same amount. The reality is, if your family are in need, you're more likely to be giving your salary to them, or rather than spending it on your own advancement of career. And I'm wondering whether that would further polarise inequality in the future.
0: Absolutely, and and there's lots of different proposed forms of UBI. Some of which would have a means-tested benefit on top of the universal provision. That some people would make the argument that once you introduce more means testing into a universal system, you negate the benefits you get from the fact it's universal in terms of the dignity and security. Another angle on this would be the kind of church tradition elements. I was talking with Paul Morrison, um, our colleague who was on the podcast a couple of months ago, about UBI, and he made the point that historically the church has always focused on need in its social outreach and its advocacy, it's always how do we target support for those who need it most? And some people would say that's an argument against UBI because of what the church has traditionally done. But the flip side is that the church doesn't have the capability of universal provision. The church has a lot of volunteers and a limited amount of money, so it absolutely makes sense to, to target that to those most in need. Whereas the state has the capability of universal provision, which may then also help those most in need. I think for me, one of the the key questions is, is it a case of whatever helps the poorest the most is the best system from a Christian point of view? I think that's the assumption I've always worked from, from my faith, that it's always about the most vulnerable. How do we help them? And UBI might be that system that helps the poor the most. Or is it that the concept of universality is an intrinsically better way of doing things in terms of the dignity that it gives people, even if it has a limited or even no effect on rates of poverty and unemployment. It's possible that there are systems which would help the poorest more, systems that reduce poverty more, that cost less than UBI, but they would require means testing. And I think some of it comes down to how much you value the extra dignity it would give people, the mental health benefits, the security of knowing your
1: benefits aren't going to stop for any reason yeah so i was coming to a similar conclusion of um how do we balance this universality which seems something that the gospel offers but also the recognition that some people's needs are greater than others in certain situations and i was trying to understand you know what what would the bible speak how would how does the bible speak into this um and i went back again to kind of levitical law the old testament when when the land was being divided up amongst the Israelites and they all received this equal portion of land, which again, which kind of points to some of this equality that we see in UBI, that everyone got their own, their own portion of the resources of the country. But we also see that those who need more, those who are most vulnerable, say the orphaned, the widowed, um, the poor, there's extra support in place to support them. And I think that's something that, as Christians perhaps we need to really test out in UBI is that something that will be a benefit to to the most vulnerable in our society
0: yeah how we get the right mix of universal support and targeted support is such a huge question which we're not going to be able to answer today but it's a great question to think about so we'll end our monthly musing there
1: So if of course, you're interested in trying to understand more about universal credit and the welfare system in the UK, there's a great report on the JPIT website um, which is called Universal Credit Increasing Poverty by Design. So I highly recommend going and checking that out.
0: Yeah, definitely have a look at that. Uh, when this podcast goes out, it's also going to be Refugee Week. Uh, so keep an eye out for various campaigns that are going on with that. Um, particularly look at the JPIT social media for what we're going to be doing. You can also follow the podcast's social media on Twitter at FIP underscore podcast, and on Instagram, Faith in Politics podcast. We'll be sharing some articles about universal basic income uh, and asking for your thoughts on that. Thank you for joining us on Faith in Politics, a podcast brought to you by the Joint Public Issues team of the Baptist Union of Great Britain. Church of Scotland and the Methodist and United Reformed Churches. To round us off, we have a prayer from Molly Pugmire, our newest member at the Joint Public Issues team. Loving God, we pray for those who are in the midst of this crisis and are having to rely on universal credit, perhaps for the first time. We pray for safety, security and perseverance. For those in government responsible for the welfare system. We pray for wisdom, compassion and listening. We pray that as we emerge from this crisis, we can build a social security system which values the dignity of every person and meets the needs of all who need it. Amen.